Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahillezi enzala ala abdi kitab ve lem yec'al lehu ibaca. Ahmaduhu subhanahu ve eşkuruhu ve esta'inu bih. نستغفرك ربي ونتوب إليك ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا فمن يهديه الله فهو المهتد ومن يضلل فلن تجد له وليا مرشدا ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي الأمين خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين سيرة المرسل عليه الصلاة والسلام And the life of the Prophet and the way that he translated the Islamic message into a real-life example holds continuing and living lessons for us. Lessons that I wish we would take to heart that we would internalize and transform because they have these lessons have the ability to transform our lives into something other than what we have been marred in for now a very long time the Quran is the accompanying text to the living example of the Prophet's life although it constantly and systematically addressed many of the events unfolding in the life of the Prophet the discourse of the Quran what the Quran said existed in continuing relevance in perpetuity what the lessons it taught did not simply apply to the events unfolding at the time of the Prophet but they were intended to demonstrate and teach a lesson. Each revelation placed within its proper context can open worlds of meaning and understanding. Muslims often approach the life of the Prophet and the text of the Quran and the Quranic revelation itself in a casual fashion, not in any serious, in seriously engaged way, and their, and their lives suffer as a consequence.
Muslims often miss the opportunity to benefit from the remarkable example the what was what is supposed to be the core example for Muslim life the life of the Prophet and the way that the Quran interacted with the Prophet commenting educating addressing because in that is an entire philosophy of life an entire understanding of the way that we ought to exist i will give just a little example of what i'm talking about when we often approach the seerah of the prophet we forget that not all reports are equal to one another. We forget that there are key moments, there are particular events in which the prophet, as a prophet, addresses the Muslim community, the community of believers, in a way that allows us to understand what the entire Islamic message is about. There is a big difference between a hadith we read that someone says they heard the Prophet utter without understanding what the context of this hadith is. So someone just reports, I heard the prophet say. And the hadith is sort of um, hanging out there without a context, without historical placement. And reading about a report that was not just reported by tens of people, of hundreds of people that heard the prophet say it, but it occurred in a context of critical importance in which the entire message of Islam was being set out. So for instance, we know and we've talked about this before, that for years Muslims are persecuted in Mecca. They suffer a great deal, although we don't spend a lot of time understanding what precisely Muslims went through in Mecca, but there's a long story there full of nuances. Some Muslims migrate to Abyssinia to escape persecution. The Prophet is not one of, the, doesn't migrate to Abyssinia obviously, but remains in Mecca, remains with the other persecuted Muslims. There is a concerted effort and a lot of work that goes into finding a new homeland in Yathrib, a city called Yathrib, which is renamed the Medina, the Medina of today. And eventually Muslims escape persecution by migrating from Mecca to Medina. Now, they don't migrate from Mecca to Medina overnight. There are a lot of things that take place before they do, which perhaps, inshallah, we'll have an opportunity to talk about. But after all preparations are done, 
Muslims are able to migrate from Mecca to Medina to do the hijrah to escape persecution. In Medina, part of the critical equation is that Medina had long suffered from a civil war between two tribes, a tribe known as Al-Aws and another tribe known as Al-Khasraj. This, tri this civil war between these two tribes is a jahili war, it's a nationalistic war, it's a tribal war, it's a war of ignorance, there are no principles, no justice, it's simply a war of revenge and counter-revenge and blind affiliations and nationalisms. But these two Arab tribes are not the only people who live in Medina, there are also Jewish tribes that live in Medina. And the Jewish tribes for a long time had been thriving because they were not part of the civil war. Rather, they were focused on commerce and business. And in fact, the civil war that existed in Medina was financially beneficial for the Jewish tribes. Obviously, if you have two parties that are at war and you are politically stable and not involved in the military conflict, you can make a lot of money selling military hardware to the warring tribes and you can make a lot of profits. A big part of the migration from Mecca to Medina is that the Prophet ﷺ, as a new transformative stage, brought an end to the civil war. But not only would there be an end to the civil war, there had to be an end to the ideology that allowed for that civil war to exist for so long. The ideology of nationalism and tribalism and of bragging about your class and your position in society because that is what fueled that tribal war. All of that had to be strictly rejected and denounced. From now on, although, yes, you are Aus, yes, you are, Khaz, you are Khazraj, yes, you are two Arab tribes, one tribe is not better than the other simply because of its history or of its accomplishments or of its lineage or genealogy. It, it doesn't matter what your tribe accomplished, there is a new paradigm, and that new paradigm is a paradigm of morality and ethics. From now on, both tribes are declared to be part of a new phenomena, the Ansar, the, in English we often call them the helpers. Those who now have converted to Islam and support the Prophet and the new Islamic message. And critically, one of the most critical steps that the Prophet takes once the Prophet and Muslims of Mecca migrate to Medina is the pact of brotherhood and sisterhood, the Mu'akha. From now on, as Muslims, the Aus and Khazraj are as if brothers, and the Meccan migrants, the Muhajirin, those who migrated from Mecca, and the native Medinians are also declared to be brothers and sisters.
So, the, uh, your affiliation as a Muslim and the substantive requirements of justice and morality are more important and in fact completely trump any blind affiliation as to who your father is or was or your grandfather was or your class position or your national tribal history etc etc now we as muslims we often tell the story and move on as if it was an easy thing but that's because we don't know our seerah and that's because we don't study the quran carefully in fact it was not an easy thing it was a real challenge it was a real challenge because it required these early Muslims to transform their entire way of thinking, to shift their consciousness from a consciousness that associated honor and prestige with money and genealogy to now identifying honor with ethical things, ethical things like not cheating, not lying, not going to prostitutes, not drinking alcohol or getting drunk at that stage. What defined you as a human being was revolutionized and it required a great deal of work. So when we try to understand what is critical, what is a critical moral lesson that the Prophet ﷺ taught his followers, doesn't it make sense that we study what the Prophet ﷺ said to these first Muslims at that critical stage, at the very first days and weeks and months of the migration, that transformative moment from jahiliyyah, from ignorance to morality, that transformative moment from nationalism to ethicism, to an ethical existence. Doesn't it make sense to study what the Prophet ﷺ told the believers and what the Qur'an said to the believers in order to achieve that result? If you truly want to understand what Islam is about, you don't go and read a hadith let's just call it an off hadith, a hadith without a context, an isolated report from someone who heard, who saw, who heard something, who told someone. And then your issue, your Islamic issue becomes things like nail polish or music or drawing or some other thing like that. But to understand these core historical moments and what was being taught to these early Muslims. So again, go back to that critical moment. The Prophet ﷺ migrated from Mecca to the Medina. Now there's a new reality in Medina. There are huge challenges. The huge challenges is that the civil war was declared at an end. Now, a lot of Muslims don't know that the civil war's memory between the Aus and Khasraj was quite fresh. It was just yesterday that they were still fighting. So, 
the early Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ had every reason to worry that this civil war might ignite again. And if that civil war would have ignited, the entire Muslim project would have failed. But not only that, you had to worry about the business class that has sustained a huge financial loss because of the end of the civil war. The Jewish tribes and the unaffiliated tribes that existed in, in, in Medina, not part of the Aus al-Khasraj, but those who made a lot of money from war profiteering. You also have to worry about, and we often don't talk about these people and we often don't know anything about them, those Medinians who didn't convert to Islam, who remained living in Medina but had not converted to Islam. You also have to worry about those who converted to Islam in name only, but could end up being like a Trojan horse because they only converted to accommodate a new political reality, but their hearts remained not Muslim. So with all of that, the Prophet now arrives in Medina and gets ready to deliver his first khutbah speaking to the new reality. Present in this khutbah are all of these Muslims who were persecuted for years, who had migrated to Medina, and present in this khutbah are the entire picture that I drew to you. What does the Prophet ﷺ say in this khutbah? I will excerpt the most critical parts in it. The Prophet starts, and I'm just going to quickly go on. Inna ahsan al-hadith kitabullah qad aflaha man zayyanahu Allah fi qalbih. وأدخله في الإسلام بعد الكفر واختاره على ما سواه من الحديث الناس إنه أحد أحسن الحديث وأبلغه أحب من أحب الله أحب الله من كل قلوبكم ولا تملوا كلام الله وذكره then it goes on, وَصْدِقُوا اللَّهِ صَالِحَ مَا تَقُولُونَ بِأَفْوَاهِكُمْ وَتَحَابُوا بِرَوْحِ اللَّهِ بَيْنَكُمْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهِ يَغْضَبُ أَنْ يُنْكَثَ عَهْدُ The Prophet ﷺ in this critical historical moment stands up and reminds Muslims that they have no future as Muslims unless they first learn to appreciate and value the Quran, the Book of God. The second advice that the Prophet gives this new nascent community is don't get bored with dhikr. It's a challenge. Because human beings haven't changed. The same human beings today that are only entertained if they are sitting in front of TV or playing video games, they're the same human beings. Maybe in the past they would be entertained by horses and camels and whatever. But the human psychology that gets tired of dhikr, gets bored and wants excitement is the same. So the second advice is persist with dhikr and don't get bored. وَلَا تَمَلُّوا ذِكْرَ اللَّهِ It's as if the Prophet is saying, I know it's, it's, it's difficult. I know it's a challenge. 
The third Ahibullah and this is critical. The third is love God with all your heart. The cornerstone of your faith is to love, to love God. And if you love God with all your heart, you will learn to love each other. And then beyond that, the, the fifth is to be truthful. To be truthful in whatever you do. But take a step back. I've been 30 years in the United States attending Islamic centers and conferences. I've not once heard an imam or a khatib or a teacher even attempt to teach this first khutbah given at this critical historical moment to the early Muslim community and what is at the cornerstone of this khutbah is your relationship to the Quran, your relationship to dhikr, your relationship to love, and your relationship to truth. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if this is what the Prophet was emphasizing in this critical, historical, political moment where all the challenges are there, doesn't it make sense to then conclude that this in fact is the cornerstone of our faith? And without learning to love the Quran, to love dhikr, to love love, to love the love of Allah, to learn to love Allah, and to be truthful, then you don't have Islam. Reflect on it. We can be Muslims all our lives and not learn to love the Qur'an. We could be Muslims our, our entire life and be taught nothing about dhikr. We might be taught prayer, but nothing about dhikr. We might be Muslims our entire lives and be taught obey Allah, but never hear anything about love Allah. And we could be Muslims our entire life and not understand that unless you speak, unless you develop the habit of speaking the truth and being a truthful human being, there is no chance for your morality to develop. Because if you learn to lie, learn to be dishonest, I will tell you right now, you will also learn to be false in your love and in your Iman. This honest human being doesn't really know how to love. Their love is superficial. And their Iman is superficial. Because they learn not to lie to other people, they learn to lie to themselves. And once you learn to lie to yourself, you also lie to God. And you lie to everything until you no longer know what the truth is. You become addicted to lying. So fake or not fake become indistinguishable. To me, this is a critical historical moment. A critical moral lesson. 
the voice of the Prophet ﷺ reaching out across the centuries, telling us you need to reorient yourself. You want to understand the mess that Muslims find themselves in? You need to reorient yourselves to, uh, to see that flair that excited the early generations about why was it they, that they were so excited about Islam that they could withstand years of persecution, abandon their entire life and migrate 500 kilos from Mecca and Medina and then go through unbelievable sacrifices. What moved their passion? And you find it in moments like this. خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين So although the Prophet عليه والسلام is right there with with the early Muslims. And although the Prophet is there as a moral teacher, the challenges don't suddenly end. In fact, remember this class of war profiteers, the people who are making a lot of money of the continuing civil war between the Aus and Khasraj. And for them, the end of the civil war is a financial disaster. They, they will stop selling whatever they sold so people can kill each other. And they were very unhappy about this new talk about honest business, honest business practices, love, brotherhood, sisterhood, this new morality paradigm, this new, the end of the civil war between the Aus and Khasraj and this relationship between the Muslims of Mecca and Muslims of Medina, we often think that, oh, well, you know, these people were the people who didn't convert to Islam. Well, that's not true. Many of them pretended to convert to Islam in order to fight Islam from the inside. But among the events that took place, there was a fellow, a, a chieftain from one of the Jewish tribes. His name was Shas ibn Qais. Shas ibn Qais said, you know, this is a huge financial blow to us businessmen. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? Okay, well, let's get a talented young poet to go meet with these early Muslims. When the tribes of Aus and Khasraj were at each other's throats, killing each other, there was a battle that took place three years earlier called the Battle of Boath. During that battle, the propaganda arm of both tribes had worked to a max. Back then, what was the propaganda arm? It was poetry. And nowadays, we have other propaganda arms, but back then it was poetry. So the elves composed poems about their heroism, 
and uh, their their brave dead and how the Khasraj were all cowardly and idiots and the Khasraj did the same. There were poems back and forth in the Battle of Ba'ath. So Shas ibn Qais said, let's get this young man, go meet with these early converts. The Prophet ﷺ talks to them about loving God and loving each other. Well, why doesn't he just pretend to be a friend who is just strolling through the memory of the Battle of Ba'ath and would start reciting the poetry that was composed back then? In other words, try to ignite, reignite the flame of hate between these two tribes. Perhaps we can get, we can flare up the civil war again. And if the civil war flares up again, we're back in business again. So this young man goes, he's paid very well, he's trained very well. And he meets with the early Muslims and pretends to be a Muslim. He sits with them and he starts saying, oh, I remember this great poem by this great Aussie guy who said X, Y, and Z. And then he goes to the Khasraj and says, oh, I remember that wonderful Khasraji poem that was delivered at the Battle of Ba'ath that said this and that and continues to do this until the civil war is ready to flare up between the now newly converted Aus al-Khasraj. Once they start remembering the bragging of Jahiliya, the bragging of the days of ignorance, the nationalism, they start, he, this man starts reminding them of their glorious dead well, do you remember when the, uh, the Khasraj killed your uncle? Do you remember when the Khasraj killed your grandfather? Things get so bad that the civil war is about to reignite between the Aus and the Khasraj again. The Prophet hears about it, rushes to prevent a battle before it breaks out, and he says his famous statement, Are you going to go back to the days of ignorance and I'm still amongst you? And it is the presence of the Prophet that prevents that civil war from reigniting. I don't have time to go through the entire Quranic revelation on this incident. But Ali Umran, Surah Ali Umran, chapter 3 of the Quran, one of the most remarkable things is Allah comes now talking to Muslims, chiding Muslims about how close they came to civil war and how had it not been for the intervention of the Prophet they would have returned to the day of ignorance. When the Quran makes its intervention in this event, what does it underscore? as the cause for this massive failure. It points to the finger, points its finger at a principle. And that is the principle of enjoining the good and forbidding evil. Al-amr bil-ma'roof al-munkar. Why that principle? Why does the Quran come and say, this moral failure, why doesn't it say, well, it's the fault of Shas bin Qais? Why doesn't it say, well, it's the fault of 
all the numerous things it could have assigned fault to, but what it shows to underscore is that you as Muslims have to have an institution that is alive amongst you, and that is the institution of enjoining what's good and speaking out against what is bad. Simple, very simple reason. And it's very relevant for us today. It is as if the Quran is saying, this could not have occurred had it not been for the fact that there were leaders in the community that failed to rise up to the dangers that were present by speaking against ignorance at a moment when it mattered. That the duty to enjoin what is good, the duty to call for what is good, what we call today freedom of speech, that when those who need to speak up, to speak up at that historical, at that critical moment, and hit the brakes and say, what are you doing? Why are we reciting the poetry of the days of ignorance? Why are we talking about our great-grandfathers and great-fathers? Or where are the moral lessons? of Why aren't we speaking about dhikr and loving each other rather than remembering the days of the battle of Mu'ath and so on? Yet that's where the failure is. If you're interested, revisit Surat Ali Amran, beginning around verse 105. The Quran comes to address this event and to say, your moral worth is contingent on your ability to speak up for what is truth and speak up against what is wrong. Look at how many relevant lessons. Your relationship to the Quran. The importance of living with God from one minute to another. The importance of your relationship to Allah being based on love. And your relationship to fellow Muslims being based on love, not on false pietistic performances, but on real love. The importance of living by the truth and for the truth. And then after all of that, if there is a moral failure, don't despair. When you fail, don't sit there and flagellate yourself and say, well, we are losers. Just That's the way we are. Muslims are just losers. We're all losers. What do you expect? When you feel it's a moment, it's a time to learn a moral lesson. But that moral lesson is impossible unless you are the type of people who allow truth speakers to speak and who bother listening to truth speakers. If you are people who are, not, who are interested in entertainment or if you have a dictatorship that silences any truth speaker, then you learn nothing from your moral failures and your moral failures become more and more acute. Now, you don't need me to tie all of this with what is going on in the world today. If I had more time, I would, believe me. We see Muslims at each other's throats in Yemen. We see Muslims at each other's throats in Syria, in Libya. We see an unbelievable war being fought between dictators 
who don't want truth, don't want love, don't want dhikr, except dhikr that is directed at the hakim. Dhikr al-hakim is okay. The ruler. We see societies built on lies and corruption, because lie, corruption is fundamentally a relationship of lying, dishonesty. And more, most important, we see societies that have learned to silence true speakers and to marginalize true, true speakers and to grab true speakers and throw them in prison. What? As Israelis grab more Palestinian lands, annex more Palestinian lands, as Israelis usurped Jerusalem, as unbelievable numbers of Muslims are being slaughtered all around the globe. Two million Muslims in concentration camps in China being used as forced labor, while Muslim countries didn't do lift a finger to help these Chinese Muslims who are suffering horribly. It is the American Congress that just passed a law trying at least to impose some punishments against China for its horrendous human rights record with Muslims in China. Muslims suffer in India and no one cares. Muslims need a, an ethical, an ethical, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Not fix up, but an, an overhauling, a, a restructuring. Because their relationship with their Quran and with Islam itself has become stale. Has become so stale that the smell of rot is aching out of it. We don't know our tradition. We judge our tradition all the time, but we don't know our tradition. And we don't know our tradition because there is a huge failure of educator, education and educators. Those who teach Islam in our institutions are hardly qualified to do so. Because they don't know the type of stuff that I've been just telling you in this khutbah. I am sure that the vast majority of them, it will be the first time they ever heard of it. And that is the heart of the problem. Let me end with this. And I know I'm, I'm over the time zone. The same, in the same way that Allah created the night and day according to logical laws, logical scientific laws. Allah also created sociological laws and historical laws that function with the same logic and same consistency. And in every society, unless those who have the means are willing to spend money to support what is right, to uphold what is right, nothing advances. Can you imagine, I just read recently that there is this, some Saudi emir who had a bank account in Saudi, in, in, in France, something like $6 billion, a personal bank account. Can you imagine a person like that in the hereafter when Allah lists all the problems that this money could have been used to address? Can you imagine their accountability? 
But you don't need to have billions of dollars. Even if you have, even if you're among those quote-unquote moderately rich who have a few million dollars, and you prefer to spend that money on your luxury, then on what matters? You are responsible. It kills me that I recently read in the news that Steve Bannon is building a new institute. It just, he had the law case in, in Italy. A new right-wing Islamophobic institute in Italy, Catholic right-wing Islamophobic institute. How does Steve Bannon manage to build an institute like that in Italy? Through donations, money. Rich people gave Steve Bannon money and said, go build yet another Islam-hating institute, this time in Italy. We are going to spend money so you can hate Islam. While Muslims... They're spending their money on halal nightclubs in Jeddah, on Da Vinci portraits, on going to nightclubs in Paris, on spending a night with this famous singer or this famous model. Allahumma afu'anna. Allahumma aghfir lana. Allahumma arhamna. Allahumma ahdina li aqraba min hadha rashada ya aliya azim. Allah forgive our sins and grant us the insight and the ability to love you and to love through you, ya Rabbil Alameen. Allah help Muslims emerge out of their days of ignorance and jahiliyyah, ya aliya azim. And support us and aid us and bless our lives. Ya Kareem, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim, Wa Aqlu Salaam.